Oh, and by the way, if I look a little tired this morning, it's because we got two new puppies. <laughs> and they're up all night, too. <laughs> Our reading today from God's Holy Word. First uh, John, the first chapter, the first ten verses. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. So you heard it at the start, at the beginning of his epistle, this first letter of John. As he begins his letter, he talks about the beginning. This should not surprise us. If you have your Bibles or if you are familiar with God's Word, you know that in the first chapter of John's Gospel, there's a similarity. In his letter and in his version of the good news, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke also wrote, John wants us to make sure that we understand the beginning of all things. Not just the beginning of a Gospel or an an epistle, but the beginning of creation itself. For in the beginning, there was the Word. (laughs) The Word was with God. The Word was God. You remember it from John's Gospel. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word died on a cross for us. That Word, who is Jesus, was raised from the dead for us. So in his letter, John reminds us that he and his disciples have experienced the same word, this Jesus, firsthand. He says, we've heard the word, we've seen it with our eyes, we've looked at the word hanging, bloody, beaten on the cross. We've witnessed the word standing alive, resurrected before us. We've even touched Jesus, we've touched this word with our own hands. Do you hear what John's saying? We've heard Jesus. We've seen Jesus. We've looked at Jesus. We've touched Jesus. It's real. It really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This is not the story of madmen. This is truth, an eternal truth that stretches back to the beginning of creation itself as recorded in the book of Genesis. 
So having set the tone, if you will, having laid the foundation for his message, John then makes this very profound uh, shift, if you will, in focus. We now proclaim that same word, that same Jesus, to you. What we received, you received. Jesus is real. His forgiveness is for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. You now have fellowship with us. And since you have fellowship with us, you have fellowship with Jesus. For Christ alone is the source of this mercy that we know. Christ alone is the source of this communion that we share. This hope that is ours. And this life that comes only through the death and resurrection of God's anointed one. And then, interestingly enough, John writes, unless we share all this with you, unless this word that was from the beginning is proclaimed to you, unless our fellowship in the word extends to others, unless our experience of grace and mercy are shared with others, then, did you hear it? Our joy is incomplete. So that leads us to the second point of this first part of John's letter. He declares the source of God's forgiveness in Christ, and now he talks about the scope of God's mercy and loving kindness. I know many Christians, sincere, good loving people who talk about the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you know, we we Lutherans should not take offense at that. I mean, Jesus died for you because you're a sinner. Jesus died for me because I'm a sinner. He took your place on the cross. He took my place on the cross. That's pretty personal, isn't it? I mean, how much more personal can God be? But a personal relationship with Jesus was never intended to be so personal that it then moves into becoming private or hidden. Our joy is incomplete unless it is shared, unless the fellowship is expanded, unless we talk about Jesus with others as they are brought from darkness into the same light that we know in Christ. I want you to think about the first disciples. They spent, Scripture tells us, about three years with Jesus day to day, town to town, journeying to big cities, to small villages. They were with Jesus three years face to face. They then had the singular joy of spending 40 days with Christ between his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And all of this was firsthand, personal. You would think this would give them the greatest joy imaginable, perfect joy, complete joy. But John says, no, all this that we've experienced through the living word, Jesus, it's lacking, it's truncated, It's incomplete unless we share it with other people. 
Do you understand that? The scope of God's love and forgiveness is not just for a lucky chosen few who get to keep it to themselves. The Word made flesh. Jesus died for the sins of the world. God so loved the world and all the people in it that He sent His only begotten Son. And so our joy, that is a sweet joy that I know as your pastor here at Faith, is incomplete and truncated unless we are actively welcoming others to the family of God and extending the love that we've received in Christ to other people who don't yet know it. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I've served four congregations, large ones, small ones, big cities, small towns of less than 2,000 people. Every single one of these congregations was completely unique. But they all had one thing in common. The church councils, the finance committee, the treasurer, spent a lot of time looking at the numbers. The dollars, offerings in, mission money out. They spent time looking at worship attendance, total membership. All four of those councils were not alone because I did the same thing as the pastor in every single congregation. And it's not just a sick dog that keeps me awake at night. Sometimes my confession to you is that our numbers prevent me from sleeping. I stay awake thinking about it and praying about it. And here's the thing. There are lots of ways to increase numbers. A lot of pastors I know have decided, just tell the people what they want to hear. Make them laugh. Don't preach the full word because the full word calls us out. I mean... I know a lot of pastors who would never read from 1 John, the first 10 verses. That if people say they have no sin, the truth is not in them. I mean, those are strong words, aren't they? So some pastors don't talk about sin because, you know, ooh, that's offensive. So some preachers have decided that sermons should be something like an extended hallmark greeting card. Make it witty. Make it have a jingle. And these methods have increased numbers in lots of places. Recently, I spoke with a young person who's been worshiping here since Christmas. I'm not going to mention the church she used to go to, but I said, what drew you to that place? What made you go there? And she goes, well, I never really went to church, but some friends invited me. And I like going there because it's just so much fun. It's like being at a rock concert. Now, don't, go, don't, don't get me wrong. I like, I like a good concert. I like rock and roll. I've seen Led Zeppelin. I've seen Pink Floyd. I've seen the Doobie Brothers. I saw Neil Young at Red Rocks. I like a rock concert, but I go there to be entertained. And I suppose making church fun, like a rock concert, is one way to attract more people. But I, I wonder, is it is it Faithful. And I'll ask you, brothers and sisters, how often do we hear Jesus talking about the spiritual life and the cost of discipleship as something fun? When I listen to Jesus in Scripture, he says, you want to be my disciple? Really? Pick up your cross. Get in line. Follow me. See, I don't think that discipleship is always supposed to be fun. 
like being at your favorite casino or tingly coliseum for a concert. There's joy in knowing the Lord, to be sure. But we must not equate the joy that is ours in Christ with something that's fun or entertaining. Jesus did not come to entertain us. He came to save us. Some of you know this because you've served in a leadership positions. Some of you, this might be new information. Every year, on an annual basis, every member of the staff receives an annual evaluation and a rating, a numerical rating. A five means you're doing great. A one means good luck with your next job. <laughs> I get rated by not just one, but two people, the president and the vice president of the congregation, our executive board. I never served a church that had that kind of numeric rating. My first few years, I would sweat bullets, wondering what number would I get. What our president and vice president have to tell me is important. I listen carefully to their evaluations of my preaching, my leadership, my service. But I'm not worried these days as much about my annual rating as I used to be. Now that I am a grandfather, now that I am approaching, before you know it, 20 years here, now that I will turn 60 this year of our Lord, I find myself thinking and praying a lot more about my rating from God. And I spend more of my time thinking and praying about your rating from God. How would the Lord rate your desire and effort to make the joy that is ours in the gospel more complete by telling your friends, your classmates, your neighbors, your co-workers about the Jesus who loves them? I want to see more people worshiping here because that means they're being led to Christ. Not because it increases my chance for a higher rating, but because it makes our joy complete. Yeah, I want to see more offerings. What pastor doesn't? But not just so the executive board can give me a four or a five. It's because more offerings means more people are discovering the joy that is ours in being faithful stewards. And with more offerings, we can simply do more and be more in leading people to Christ and partnering with all the great Christian organizations that are doing the work of the kingdom in places that we can never go. Well, having set um, his letter up in terms of reminding his audience of the source of forgiveness and addressing the scope of it, I think John does something next, which I would call like the school of forgiveness, how we get schooled, how we get taught, how we learn. In verse 8, we hear important words that many pastors will never read in worship or preach from. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. In fact, if we say we have no sin, we are standing arrogantly telling God, I know better than you. You, sir, are a liar. And that is an unholy, blasphemous thing to do. Prussian King Frederick the Great was once touring a prison in Berlin. Some of you know the story. 
And as the prisoners were spreading word that the king is here visiting the prison, they all started crying out to the king, dropping to their knees. I've been framed. I'm an innocent man. I don't belong here. Your majesty, have mercy on me. I'm innocent. But as Frederick was making his way through the prison, he saw one man just kind of standing there defiantly with arms crossed. And the king said to this man, why are you here? He said, well, I've been accused of armed robbery, your majesty. And the king said, are you guilty? And he said, yes, indeed. I deserve my punishment. People that were there said that Frederick then summoned the jailer and ordered him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison or he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. (laughs) Now let's shift that to life in Christ and congregational reality. I don't want a show of hands. I don't want any names mentioned. But some of you have told me that you belong to congregations where you not just had to put on your Sunday best and ladies your makeup, but you had to put on your false face when you came to church. Your happy face. Because you didn't dare share with others your mistakes, your brokenness, your failures, the failures of your children, your fears, your sadness, and certainly not your sin. And sadly, congregations can be like this if they don't take the full word of God seriously. And this breaks my heart. I talk to far too many people, especially young people, who have this idea that we Christians just love to look down our noses at other people thinking that we're the saints, we're squeaky clean, and they're the sinners, the people with dirt. I've talked to far too many young people in their 20s and 30s who avoid church because they think we come here to pat ourselves on the back for being such good people, such better citizens. Some of those young people think our joy is made complete because we get to bask in the light while everybody else is in darkness and going straight to hell. Doesn't that make us so happy? No. It should grieve our hearts. As we learn from Jesus in the school of discipleship, we come to this realization, we're all sinners. Were it not for Christ, we too would still be in the darkness. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We need more than a new look, a new attitude. We need nothing less than a new life. And that only happens through death and resurrection, being joined to Jesus in a death like his, to be raised with him in a resurrection like his. In the men's washroom of his elite London gentleman's club, British newspaper publisher William Beverbrook happened to meet Edward Heath. He was a new young member of parliament And just days before, Beverbrook had printed an insulting editorial about the young parliamentarian. This meeting wasn't planned in the men's room. The publisher, embarrassed by the encounter, said, My dear chap, I've been thinking it over and I was wrong. Here and now, I wish to apologize. Young Heath said, Very well, sir. 
but the next time, would you please insult me in the washroom and apologize in your newspaper? (laughs) You and I are called to be God's people in what we might call privacy in private times just as much as we are in public. Let me just use the language of the illustration. We are to be Christian people whether we're in the washroom or the public square. Wherever we are, we are called to renounce darkness, confess our sin, and do our best to walk in the light. And yet even in the light we will fall from time to time we'll have disappointments we'll have sorrow yet in the light of God's love we can help one another we can uh, do the work that God has assigned us that we can encourage and forgive one another the way you've restored and taught me and blessed me in so many ways we can um, make our joy more complete (laughs) serving Christ here and in all the places that you go when you're far away from the sanctuary see John wants you to know in his gospel and in his epistle God's love is for you God's grace is for you God's forgiveness is for you this John knew and this we know this we have learned in the school of discipleship at the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.